Isn't God good? You ready for the word today? Listen, today I, I, I'm so excited about, I, I, first let me just say, I, I want to thank you for praying for me. Over the last week, if you were here last week, I probably scared some of you. I scared myself, I think. Uh, I feel a little better today. I've been battling uh, pneumonia. If you were not here, it's been something that's kind of been ongoing for uh, really a few months. And, um, uh, today I feel a little better, but this week, you know, just knowing that uh, I needed to get better, I tasked one of my associate pastors bring a word to you today. I know he's going to bring a word to you. You know, I'm so thankful that uh, God has surrounded me with great people. Amen. How many of you know you need great people to help you to accomplish what God's called you to do? But, but, but before I bring him on stage, let me say this. You, I, I tell you this all the time. It, it's, it's all right to shout in this place. It's all right to jump up and clap your hands. It's, it's all right to, you know, high-five your neighbor and say, woo, yeah, it's all right to, you know, just shout, bring it, hallelujah, come on, give me some more, preach it, preach it. You know, it's all, all that stuff's good. It's okay to cry. It's okay to all, it, what's not okay is to act like you're dead. <laughs> because the Word of God is alive. The Word of God is alive. Do, do you hear me? I shared this with the first service. In Matthew chapter 13, I think it is, Jesus was preaching in his own hometown, and everybody was amazed. It said they were amazed. It said, where did this guy learn all this stuff? They were amazed, amazed. It says amazed. The word amazed means amazed. I mean, just amazed. They were like, whoa, preacher, he's preaching it. They're like taking notes, you know, because all note takers go to heaven. I've told you that. And so they're taking notes, and they're taking notes. Man, he's awesome. He's awesome. Hallelujah. Preach it, preach it. And, and, you know, he gets to a part, and he says, I need to tell you what God's Word says. And, you know, somebody in the back says, preach it. Tell us what God word, God's Word says, you know. They were echoing him, and, you know. But then all of a sudden it says that all of a sudden they be, began to wonder who he was. And then they said, well, hold on a second. Isn't he such and such? Isn't he, you know, Joseph's son and Mary's son? And his brother and his sister and all that live here. And then it says they took offense to him. And then the Bible says that he could not perform miracles. Not would not, but could not. Because they had no faith. You see, they heard the word and they thought the word was amazing, man. They were in church on Sunday. Woo, man, that's awesome. But they did not take the word and work the word into their lives. Therefore, they could not experience the provision that God wanted to grant to them. You see, if, if, if God's word is not working in your life, it's because you're not working God's word into your life. Today, you're going to hear a word that you're going to be able to work into your life. And so I want you today to treat Ian, our family life pastor, as if he were me. And when you hear something that God has spoken through him, you're not applauding him. You're applauding God in him. And God's word worthy of applause. Amen. So I want you to put your hands together right now and welcome Ian O'Brien, our family life pastor. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Hey, thank you. You can have a seat. Um, I want to start out this morning before we do anything else. I just want to say publicly thank you to Pastor Mark for uh, trusting me to stand up on this stage and speak to you guys this morning. It is a huge honor. Uh, it is a very humbling experience to be with you this morning. I'm very excited uh, for what God's got to say through me this morning. But again, I just want to thank Pastor Mark. Um, I shared with the first service, I've been in church my entire life. I've been around a lot of pastors. 
I know that being a lead pastor is one of, if not the hardest jobs on the face of the planet. And now you guys make it a lot easier than it could be because this is an awesome church and you guys are some great people. But being a lead pastor is a very hard job. Is it somebody, something he has to put up with every day of his life? But I've never met a lead pastor who brings as much love and grace and compassion and just plain old hard work as our pastor does. So this morning, could you put your hands together and just let him know how much you appreciate him? Amen. Now, from there, I want to welcome you to week two of our series, Cinderella Stories. Again, it's an honor to be with you guys. I'm excited uh, to be with you. If you weren't here last week, the definition of a Cinderella story, it's a term we use a lot in sports. It's basically when an underdog, underdog overcomes the odds and achieves big things. Um, you know, and, and so that's, that's a Cinderella story. Um, a lot of us have these Cinderella stories in our own lives. All right, you know, there, even if it's a little tiny aspect where we can say, oh yeah, that was a, that was a Cinderella story for me. I want to share a couple of mine with you. First of all, growing up, I was incredibly shy. I was a huge introvert, probably the shyest person I've ever met uh, still to this day. But now, I talk for a living. Um, yeah, it's kind of weird. You know, I was homeschooled, kindergarten, all the way through 12th grade. Never stepped foot into a public school, never stepped foot into a private school. I was homeschooled all the way, kindergarten through 12th grade. And then I graduated college and spent four and a half years as a public school teacher. Okay, that's a Cinderella story. Uh, I was born and raised in the North. I spent the first 23 years of my life in the great state of Michigan. But I promise you that I love Carolina barbecue and hush puppies more than anybody else I know. Anybody else I know. Okay, that stuff's good. I'm hungry now. But probably my favorite personal Cinderella story involves my wife. My wife, Tiana, sitting right over there. And we met right here at Epicenter Church about six years ago. We were actually preparing to go on a missions trip to England, a large crew of people. Um, and, you know, when I first met her, I thought she was awesome. Yeah, I don't believe in love at first sight, but I do know that I loved the first sight of her because she was just gorgeous and she was, she was, she was great. You know, and so I was really crushing really hard on her, and she was not so much with me. And, you know, I, I sent her, a couple weeks after I met her, I sent her a friend request on Facebook, and so she rejected it. And she claims that it was because she didn't recognize my profile picture, but I'm pretty sure I don't believe her even now. You know, but I tried again. I sent her another request, and she pity-friended me. Um, and... So we went on this missions trip, and any time that we weren't preaching the gospel, I was trying to get to know her better, trying to make her laugh, trying to convince her that I was worth hanging out with. So, you know, breakfast time, lunch time, break time, any time where we weren't doing something other than sleeping or, or ministering, I was trying to talk to her. And so Pastor Mark and Kim had gone on the trip with us, and I didn't find this out until a couple years later, but they were actually laughing at me behind my back, trying to say, this poor boy ain't got no chance. This girl's so far out of his league. And, and it got to the point where Miss Kim actually felt sorry for me. She's like, this boy's going, he's going to get his heart broke. And, you know, when we got off the airplane, when we returned from the missions trip, not a single person on that trip with us believed that she would ever give me the time of day again. Well, I proved them wrong because 11 months later, right here in this room, we got married. And it'll be five, five years next June. So... 
Yo, in that area, I am a Cinderella story, yo, because Kim was right on one thing. She is way out of my league. Love you, baby. Brownie points. So, the thing about being a, becoming a Cinderella story is you have to be an underdog first. So, as awesome as it is to be a Cinderella story, it's just that difficult to be an underdog. Now, as a society, we love underdogs. We love to root for underdogs. If you watch the NCAA tournament, I'm sure you were stoked that two 14 seeds beat three seeds this year. Okay. SMU got robbed. But anyways. All right. And when we watch movies, we cheer for, you know, the, the good guy. We root for the... the um, you know, the hard luck cases on reality shows like American Idol and stuff like that. You know, and, and unless you're a fan of these specific teams, you probably don't like teams like the Patriots or the Yankees or Duke because, because we don't like big behemoth winning machines. We like to cheer for the underdogs. If, if they win all the time, it's not fun to root for them. But, you know, so we love to cheer for the underdog. But I've never met a person who likes to be the underdog. It's fun to root for the underdog, but it's no fun to be the one that everybody else is rooting for. Okay, it's great to cheer for somebody else to pull themselves up by their bootstraps to overcome their adversity and to achieve success. But when we're the ones facing the obstacles, our boots always feel just a little heavier than everybody else's. You know, our adversity seems just a little bit more difficult to overcome, and our uh, odds for success seem a little longer than everybody else. You know, we'll root others on, we'll cheer, we'll, we'll have faith, we'll pray for them, we'll tell them, hey, you can do it, you can be a Cinderella story. But then we look at our own struggles and it just feels hopeless. Our odds feel impossible. Okay, it's easy for us to look at the situations that others are in and see the potential for a Cinderella story, but it's a lot more difficult to look inside ourselves or to look at the mirror and to realize that we have that same potential to go from underdog to Cinderella story if we'll just put our faith and trust in God and allow Him to get us there. We're going we're gonna to talk this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there now. 1 Samuel chapter 17 is the greatest Cinderella story, with the possible exception of the actual Cinderella story, in the history of all time. It is the story of David and Goliath. Many of you have heard that story before, but I want to use this story this morning to help all of us, and I say all of us because I still have days where I feel like nothing but an underdog. I want to use this story this morning to help us kind of discover what the process is to go from underdog to Cinderella story. The first several verses of 1 Samuel chapter 17 explain just how big of an obstacle the Israelite army is facing. We'll start in verse 3. It says, So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. He likes bronze. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Basically, this passage here tells us that dude was huge. All right, now I'm six foot two inches tall. My father-in-law is six foot five. When I stand next to my father-in-law, I feel very short. 
and there's only a three-inch difference. So these Israelites are, if you, if you assume they're like average height, you know, five, five and a half, six feet tall, and they're standing here looking at this man who's over nine feet tall. Those odds instantly seem insurmountable, impossible to overcome. And then it gets worse as we pick up the story in verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Then verse 16 adds, For forty days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelites. So basically what this tells you is this massive man who represented a tremendous problem for the armies of Israel would stand before them day and night and remind them just how hopeless their situation was. Twice a day for 40 days, he, they would muster up the courage to march out to the battle and stand on the other side of the valley. They psyched themselves up. They said, all right, we'll do it this time. And twice a day for 40 days, the Philistine champion would come out. They would look at him and run away in fear. The words, uh, the words terrified and deeply shaken in your version, it may say dismayed and greatly afraid or dismayed and terrified. But no matter what translation you're using, these words paint a picture of being shattered and broken with fear. The soldiers, the army here is paralyzed in terror by the mere sight of Goliath. He, he would launch threats at them that he would make them his slaves, but in reality, they were already slaves to the fear that he inspired in them because they could not bring themselves to stand up to the challenge of their obstacles. Not only that, but Goliath had launched this form of psychological warfare that many of us deal with every day of our lives. You're nothing, he would tell them. You're worthless. You have absolutely no chance of defeating me, so why are you even trying? I can squash you like a bug, and someday soon I'm going to do it. Many of us hear those kinds of words in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives every single day. For some of us, it's a, it's a direct attack from the enemy. For others, it's the people around us who bring negativity into our lives. But I'd be willing to guess that for most of us, it's that we've bought into the lie about ourselves. And so we look in the mirror and we hear things like, you're worthless, you're pitiful, you deserve what he did to you. No wonder she cheated on you. Look at what kind of person you are. You'll never be successful. You'll never be good enough. You're nothing but a waste of space. And we buy into these lies and we look at ourselves and we can't see anything but an underdog. And we have no, I, we just have no concept that we'll ever be able to be successful. We get up and we try to convince ourselves that today's the day our obstacles won't feel so large. Today's the day our fear won't cut so deep. But we hear those same words, we believe those same lies, and we go right back to being terrified and deeply shaken with fear. The thing is, church, that when we feel this way, when we believe these lies, we're forgetting the exact same thing that the Israelite army forgot all those years ago. And that's this. 
No matter how big your obstacle, no matter how difficult your challenge, no matter how large your giant is, God is bigger. It doesn't matter how long your odds are because God can overcome them. It doesn't matter how deep your hurt runs because God can heal it. It doesn't matter how inept or underqualified or undeserving you might think you are. God wants to use you to do amazing things for Him and for His kingdom. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 tells us that God loves you and has chosen you as His own. Ephesians 2.8 says that we are God's masterpiece created for the good works He planned for us long ago. When God looks at you, He doesn't see an underdog. He sees a Cinderella story. So we have to get past the lies that we've bought into about ourselves and remember that no matter what our problem is, our God is bigger. But if we're going to be honest with each other, and I hope we can, and I know this because I've felt this way, it's one thing to sit here in the safety of this room and clap our hands and say amen, and we know that this is truth. We know that God is bigger, but it's a whole other issue to live like that's true. Because we'll step out today, today we'll raise our hands, we'll clap, we'll cheer, we'll step out tomorrow morning, and our problem will be looking at us square in the face, and we'll say, oh, I know that God's bigger, but it sure doesn't feel like He is. And it's, it, it's one thing to know that He's bigger, and it's a whole other thing to live like that's true. The next several verses of 1 Samuel 17 introduce us to David. He's a, he's a shepherd boy, a future king of Israel, but no one knows that except for him and a couple other people. He's somewhere between the ages of 12 and 17 years old, and he, he watches his father's sheep, and occasionally his father sends him to the battlefield to deliver supplies and check up on his brothers. And it's on one such occasion that we pick up this story in verse 20. It says, So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts, as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving the battlefield with with shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? The men asked. He comes out every day to defy Israel. Verses 20 and 21 tell us that the Israelite army headed out to battle, shouting battle cries. Today's our day. We're going to do it. This is our time. This is us. We're going to overcome this obstacle. Remember the Titans. We are Sparta. And they, they just shouted all of these, these battle cries, and they, they got to the, the front lines, and they saw their, their opponent, their obstacle, and they turned around and ran away in fear. And they said, to David, have you seen the giant? Have you seen what we're up against? Have you seen what we're dealing with? Have you seen what I've been through? Have you seen what my past looks like? Have you seen 
my marriage? Have you seen my finances? Have you seen the difficulties that I'm facing? We justify our failures and our fears and we exalt our obstacles because after all, have you seen the giant? The problem is, church, when we justify our fears and exalt our obstacles, we are minimizing God. When we justify our fears, when we say, of course I'm scared of this. Have you seen him? Have you seen this situation? Of course I'm not willing to take the risk. Do you understand what I would lose? And when we exalt our obstacles, when we say, there's no way I'll ever overcome this situation. There's no way that I can make it through this challenge. When we do these things, when we justify our fears and exalt our obstacles, we are minimizing God and what he wants to bring to our lives. But the flip side of that is this. When we maximize the role of God in our lives, our obstacles will be minimized. Now, I did not say when we maximize the role of God in our lives that we can minimize our obstacles. What I said was when we maximize the role of God in our lives, our obstacles will become minimized. It won't have anything to do with us. It'll have to do with the fact that we have made God the central part of who we are and what we do and why we live. And so then any obstacle that we might face will look tiny in comparison to what God can do in us and through us and with us. David in verse 26 says, who is this pagan Philistine anyway? That he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God. Basically, he's saying to these grown men, as just a teenage boy, he's saying, yeah, I've seen the giant, but have you forgotten who you belong to? Have you forgotten who your protector is? You are members of the army of the one true God. Why would you let any obstacle, no matter how big, keep you from achieving the success that you were created for? Church, we are members of the family of the one true God. Why would we let anyone or anything keep us from becoming the Cinderella stories that we were created to be? David understands that when we maximize the role of God in our lives that our problems will become minimized. And he takes that attitude and that thought process into Saul's tent because Saul calls him and says, hey, I heard this dude's asking questions. Let me talk to him. So David walks into his tent. And the first thing he says to Saul is this. Don't worry about this Philistine. I'll go fight him. Now, Saul's response is a completely logical one, seeing as how this statement came from a, a, a boy of between the ages of 12 and 17. He says, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine. You're just a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David said, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. The NIV puts verse 32 this way. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. 
Let no one become terrified and deeply shaken any longer just because this obstacle is so big, just because your problems are so large, just because your challenges are so difficult. David sees something that the members of the Israelite army are failing to see. The giant is nothing to be afraid of because God is on their side. David recounts to Saul the many times that God came through, and he says, God's done it before, and he'll do it again, so I will fight the giant. There may be people in the room today who would say, well, God never has done much for me. He's never delivered me from my obstacles. Or maybe you might say, well, well the last time he, he delivered me from my obstacles was so long ago, it feels like a distant memory. I'd ask you to reread 1 Samuel 17, verses 32 through 37, because David doesn't say that when the lion and the bear attacked that God said, poof, now they're disappeared. David says that through the God's strength, he overcame the lion and the bear through actions. God will not deliver you from your obstacles, but he will surely deliver you through your obstacles. He's not going to say, oh, you're having some problems? Here, let me make them go away. Oh, you've got some issues and some challenges in your life? I don't need you to have faith. Let me just wash those out for you. What God's asking us to do is to have faith and believe that he's already won the victory. So he's not going to deliver us from our problems, but he surely will deliver us through our problems. And church, when God does deliver you, not if, but when God does deliver you from your challenges, whether it's something as huge as surviving a life-threatening car wreck or, or overcoming addiction or something as minor as having the willpower not to cuss out the person in line at Walmart, long story, write those victories down. Remember them. Put them in a file on your computer. Keep them somewhere so that when the next obstacle comes that's even bigger than the last, you can say and believe, hey, God's done it before and he'll do it again, so I'll fight the giant. Because Saul and the Israelites are still walking around their camp with this mindset of, have you seen the giant? But David says instead, hey, yeah, I've seen the giant, but I've also seen what God can do. And I know that when you line up the size of your obstacles with the unlimited potential of what God can do, there is no comparison. Because God is bigger than anything that we can face or will face David says, hey, I've seen the giant, but I've experienced the hope and the deliverance that is only found in Jesus Christ, and I'm never going back to being terrified and deeply shaken. What happens next, beginning in the second half of verse 37, is one of the most embarrassing moments in Saul's life. Verse 37 says, Saul finally consented, all right, go ahead, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. I was reading this story this week, preparing for this message, and something hit me that I'd never really realized before. The armor that Saul offers David here 
is the same armor that Saul wore to battle 80 different times. 80 different times he marched to the battle trying to convince himself that he could fight the giant. And 80 different times he ran away in fear, terrified and deeply shaken. And yet, here comes a little teenage boy saying, hey, I'll fight the giant. And Saul's like, hey, you want my armor? We hosted a gathering of area pastors uh, this week. And one of the men who spoke was a church planner uh, from our state. And he shared a story about uh, something he thinks might happen when he gets to heaven and that he, he wants to avoid. It was the context. But he said he's, he, he's worried that he'll get to heaven and the apostle Paul will come up to him and say, Hey, brother, share with me how you suffered for Christ during your time on earth. And he said that being a church planner, he'll, he'll be able to stand before Paul and say, well, we didn't have a permanent location for our church. So every morning I got up at 6 in the morning and set up chairs all throughout a school building. I worked a job and prepared a message each week. You know, I gave my time and, 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 and my energy on the weekends to make sure that we could have a church. And he said he's afraid that Paul will say to him, hey, yeah, uh, well, you know, that's cool. I mean, I was, uh, I was beaten you know, shipwrecked. Mm. I was tortured a little bit. I was wrongfully imprisoned. You know, that's how I suffered for Christ. But hey, hey, your chair story's cool. <laughs> Truth is, a lot of us live our lives like that old meatloaf song, which, disclaimer, the only reason I know this song is because I heard it on a Dr. Pepper commercial like six years ago. I'm not old enough to listen to meatloaf clarify no offense to those of you who, who are but but the song and, and most of you know it it goes I would do anything for love but I won't do that and so we love to say hey I'll do anything for you God or maybe we'll say I believe that God can do anything in my life the problem is that our definition of the word anything is so full of clauses and conditions that we really end up never doing much of anything at all of much consequence because we're not willing to trust God to be bigger than our obstacles or larger than our risks. And Saul was one of those people. He wanted the protection of God, but he was unwilling to face the risks that come from being fully devoted to him. And many of us want the benefits of following Jesus, but we're afraid or even unwilling to face the cost, to stand up to the obstacles or to deal with the sacrifice or discomfort that come with really being willing to do anything for Jesus. And so David quickly says to Saul, I can't go in these. Thousands of years before the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, about the concept of the armor of God, David knew he had a form of protection that was so much greater than any armor he could ever find. He knew that he had all he needed to go into battle with this Philistine because he was armed with the strength of God. He said, I can't go in these, Saul, because then I run the risk of putting my hope in man-made things, and that's just not for me. That's what you've been doing, Saul. You've been counting on this armor to protect you when all along you had the armor of God right here with you, and you're afraid to use it. So I can't go in these because I'm not used to them. From there, he goes and picks up some stones from a nearby stream, and he heads out to meet Goliath. We're going to pick this up in verse 30, 43, I'm sorry. As Goliath 
is talking to David. He says, am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head, and then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues His people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle. And He will give you to us. Even standing in the face of an obstacle that is literally twice his size, David refuses to view himself as an underdog because he knows that the battle isn't his, it's the Lord's, and it's already been won. He already def- he's already defining himself as a Cinderella story before the actions have even occurred. And essentially he's saying, the Lord will win the victory so I can have the spoils. The Lord will overcome my obstacles so I can walk in freedom. The Lord will restore your marriage so you can begin to do things differently. The Lord will help you recover from addiction so you can have a new outlook on life. The Lord will forgive you and wash away your sins so that you can experience the new life that is found only in Jesus Christ. And when it comes to the challenges and the problems and the obstacles that we face, the Lord will provide the breakthrough so that you can walk in victory. I want to tell you a little story about my son. I think we have a picture of him this time. There he is. Isn't he cute? Gets that from his mother. She's not here, so tell her I said that. She had to step out. But this is my son, Liam. He's two. Two, like he says. And he is, he's a boy. Like I said, he's two. He's a firstborn. He currently is an only child. And both me and his mother, my wife, are also firstborns. So, my son is, to say the least, a very persistent individual all right and if you've had children especially firstborns and toddlers you understand what i'm saying he he is very persistent and one time a few weeks ago i got home from work i was i was exhausted i don't remember the exact circumstances but i know that i was tired i didn't want to do anything else i just wanted to lay on the couch and so that's what i was doing i was laying on the couch kind of reclining against the arm of the couch my legs stretched out i was that's, that's my couch, too. That's my TV couch, my nap couch, my, my, my work couch. I, just, I love that couch, and I was just very relaxed, very comfortable. It's where I wanted to be. And Liam comes up to me. He's like, Daddy, Daddy, play football. It's like, no, Liam, I'm tired. I, I don't know if I can play football. Right now. Daddy, play football. It's like, all right, hold on. Let me finish doing whatever I'm doing, and then I'll play some football with you. And he starts tapping me on the leg. Daddy, Daddy, get up. Get up, Daddy, get up. And so... All right, okay, fine, I'll get up. So I sit up, put my feet on the floor, I'm leaned back against the couch, I'm like, but I'm still sitting down, still on my couch, because I don't, I don't plan to leave my couch, because you know, I'm trying to be comfortable. And I was like, okay, Liam, throw me the football. He's like, no, stand up, stand up high. And I'm like, I don't want to stand up. He's like, stand up, Daddy. So 
I stand up, but I promise you I'm not more than three inches away from my couch still. Because I'm thinking, all right, we'll, we'll play catch a couple times. I'm sitting back down. I'm sorry, I'm a terrible parent. I, I apologize, but I'm, I'm worried. I'm trying to be on my couch. And so again, I was like, all right, throw me the football, throw me the football. He's like, no, come on. He's very country for some reason. Come on. And I'm like, no, Liam, I don't want to go into your room with you. He's like, no, Daddy, come on. So he reaches up and he grabs my arm and he starts pulling. And he's little. Like I said, he's only two. He's only 32 pounds, three feet tall. So I, if you plant your feet and let him pull you, like eventually his feet fall out from under him and he falls down. It's pretty funny. I told you I'm a, I told you I'm a bad parent. But... I love him. But he's, but he's like, come on, Daddy. And so finally, we go into the room, and we play this awesome game of football, you know, where I catch it, and he throws it, and it hits him in the face, and he drops it, and all this other stuff. But it's something that I know, I mean, I cherish it now, but I know that I'll cherish it when he's 16, and he thinks that I'm the most embarrassing person in the world. Or more accurately, when he realizes that I'm the most embarrassing person in the world. But I started to think about that story in relation to the one we've been talking about today. And it hit me that Saul and the Israelites were willing to get up. They were willing to march to the battlefield and say, hey, we, we made it here. At least we tried. But it was, it was half-hearted effort. Most likely they never really intended to fight the giant, even though they psyched themselves up and tried to convince themselves that they did. Really, they just they didn't want to leave the couch. Just like me, I wanted to lay back down as soon as I could. They're like, hey, look, we showed up. At least we tried. We got up. And it's, it's important to acknowledge that we have problems. We should never pretend that they don't exist. But just getting up isn't enough. Saul and the Israelite army were willing to stand up. They stood and faced the Philistines. But again, their fear led them back to this place of inaction and helplessness. The reason for their fear was that they were still operating in their own strength and their own ability. They were attempting to stand up to their opposition and to their obstacles only through their own power. And church, I'm here to tell you that if you're trying to overcome your challenges only through your own strength, you will never achieve your destiny of being a Cinderella story. But my favorite part, the, the best part of the gospel is that you were never meant to do it on your own. God's already done it for you. And you know, we have times in our lives where our obstacles and our problems are so large that we can't do anything but stand. But if, if that's all you can do, that's okay. Ephesians 6 tells us after you've done everything you can do, stand. But if you stand, don't stand in fear and awe of your obstacles. Don't stand in disappointment and frustration of your own inability to overcome. But stand in the fullness of faith that when you're ready to move, God will move with you and He will win the victory. David seemed like the only person on this battlefield who understood the reality that God was bigger than the problem. And he was willing to do more than just get up and acknowledge its existence. He was willing to do more than just stand and stare it face to face. 
David showed up, he surveyed the circumstances, and folks, he said, come on! Because if God's for us, there's not anything we can't do. He had no doubt in his mind that the battle, that he would win the battle because he knew that the battle had already been won. 1 Samuel verse 40, 17, verse 48. As Goliath moved closer, David quickly ran out to meet him. Come on! Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and it hit the Philistine in the forehead. Come on! The stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill and cut off his head. To kill him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. Come on! Folks, we've all got problems. We've all got challenges and obstacles in our lives. And like I said before, God's not going to deliver us from them, but He wants to deliver us through them so that we can have a story to tell and inspire others. But when it comes down to it, we can't just get up and look at our problems. We can't just stand up and think about moving. We have to be willing to say, come on, because God's with me. Is your marriage falling to pieces? Come on, let God put it back together. Are your finances in shambles? Come on, let God restore them. Are you a broken mess of a human being? Come on, let God give you new life that is only found in Him. Don't just stand and stare at your giant church. Come on, let's run towards it. Let's believe that God is bigger and that through him the victory has already been won. Listen, he's done it before and he will do it again. So come on!